Well, that, was, that was nice, I appreciate that. Uh, and I'm very grateful that Jeff uh, asked me to come. Uh, it's quite a privilege to, uh, to be here. Uh, let me begin by answering your first two questions. I am six feet, seven inches tall, <laughs> and yes, I played basketball. Um, I didn't play professionally, and I don't play anymore. Uh, these days, I'm very much into cycling, so I'm, I was uh, quite excited. The Tour de France began yesterday. Um, <laughs> the cycling fans, yeah, that's good. Uh, I like doing that. Uh, I'm a pretty strong rider, but I am nothing like those guys. Um, I just ride for fun and fitness, and I do some, some big rides, and I really like it. They, however, are motivated by a desire to win one of the most difficult sporting events around. And they're motivated to get that yellow jersey, that famous yellow jersey, and get to wear that. And that's really what I want to talk to you about this morning. You see, people are motivated by a variety of things. Uh, money is certainly at the top of the list for many people. Uh, a desire for power or control motivates people to act in certain ways. Uh, for others, it's a desire for fame or recognition, getting lots of likes on Instagram or retweets so that they look good in the eyes of others and feel important. Peer pressure, of course, is one of the most important and powerful motivators, and it's not just something that you see in school. When we get older, it just gets a different name. When you're an adult, it's called keeping up with the Joneses. And it's a desire so that we will spend our time and money on a variety of things just so that we can continue to be in whatever the latest in crowd is. When we come to church on Sunday mornings, we're motivated to look and act Christian because, well, that's what you're supposed to do when you come to church. But what about when you're not here? What motivates you then? What is it at the very core of your character that motivates you to be the type of person that you are? And is it the right motivation? This morning in the book of Ruth, I want us to take a look at a man with the right motivation. Although he lived more than 3,000 years ago, he lived in a time that wasn't much different from our own. And yet he provides an example of what it looks like to live your life motivated by the right thing. But he doesn't appear until chapter two. In the first chapter of Ruth, we get examples of what not to do. And we need to take a quick look at them first. The book of Ruth begins as follows in verses one and two of Ruth. Now it came about during the time of the judges that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to live for a while in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and they remained there. Verse one and two tells us four very important things. First, it tells us when the events in Ruth took place. This story takes place during the time of, judges, of the judges. And while that may seem like an insignificant detail, it actually tells us quite a lot. Because if you were to look at the very last verse of the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25, the Bible says this. It says that um, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, if we change the word Israel there to the United States, I think it would pretty accurately describe our times as well. 
Uh, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Everyone's their own authority. Few people really care what God's word says. If it feels good and it doesn't hurt anybody, well then, it must be right. It must be good. Do it. Well, that's pretty much what you've got going, in here, going on here in Israel. Everyone is living their lives on their own terms, by their own rules, and their own definition of what's good and evil, what's right and wrong, rather than God's word. These verses also tell us where the events take place. They take place primarily in Bethlehem and Moab. This is a map of the area here, if we have that. There's Bethlehem up there near Jerusalem, and the family goes around the Dead Sea and they go to the land of Moab there. So that's the Middle East, there's Bethlehem and Moab. Uh, that's where these events take place. The family left Bethlehem and headed down to Moab. These verses also tell us uh, that there was a famine in the land. Now this is important because there were only two possible reasons that a famine occurred in the promised land of Israel. One, if God wanted to test Israel to see what was in their heart. Or two, it was a punishment for disobedience if they had sinned under the law of Moses. If Israel set aside God's word and started to live life by doing, oh, I don't know, what was right in their own eyes, like they were doing during this time, God would send a famine in the land, a sort of a, a time out, so that they could have time to come to their senses and turn away from their sin and turn toward him. And then finally, verses one and two tell us that a certain family saw the famine, and when they saw it, they headed out of the promised land for Moab to get food. And Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons didn't just head to the Moab grocery store to get food, they decided to stay there. What follows in the rest of chapter one are three great examples of what should not be the primary motivator in your life. For starters, there's Elimelech. When the famine hits, he looks at the situation there in Bethlehem and he decides since they need a food to live, the right thing to do is to head off to a country where there's food. So they loaded up the truck and they headed to, uh, to some of you just gave away how old you are. I got you. I knew it. They loaded up the truck and the rest of you go, what is that? They loaded up the truck and they moved to uh, Moab. That's where they headed. Elimelech showed what motivated him. He left the promised land for a foreign land because he was motivated by a desire for food. I mean, that seems reasonable enough. Everyone needs food to live. There's one small problem. Elimelech forgot that in Deuteronomy 8.3 that God had said, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And God had said, have no other gods before him. In Moab, they certainly weren't worshiping Yahweh. In fact, their national god was a, a, an idol called Chemish, to whom they offered human sacrifices. Now, while Elimelech may have had good intentions, moving his family to a, a land that worshiped a false god so he could get his daily bread, rather than trusting God's word and turning to him for food and placing his life in God's hands was a big mistake. In the end, verse three of chapter one says that he didn't end up living that long in Moab after all. Next up are Elimelech's sons, Malon and Kilion. Since the family had decided to stay there in Moab, verse four tells us that these two sons married two of the local Moabite women. One was named Orpah and the other Ruth. 
Malon and Kilion showed that what motivated them was a desire for wives and family. Again, this seems reasonable enough. There's one problem. While marriage is good, their marriage is not good. You see, in Deuteronomy 7, Israel was told not to marry people from certain countries around them, like Moab, which worshipped false gods, which worshipped idols, because the people they married would turn their hearts away from him. So Malon and Kilion disobeyed God's word by seeking wives from among a nation that worshipped a false god. Oh, and verse 5 tells us that after 10 years, uh, both of them also died, leaving behind two widows. Then finally we have Naomi. Verse 6 of chapter 1 tells us that after hearing that food was again found in Israel, and after having lost her husband and both of her sons, Naomi decides to head back to Bethlehem, back to Judah. Her two daughters-in-law decide to head out with her. But Naomi, with them coming along, tells them that they should go back to Moab, where hopefully they'll be able to get married again and have the security of their own people, their own extended families and new husbands. Naomi's advice to her daughters-in-law was motivated by her desire for their security. There's one problem. Naomi meant well, but she gave them bad advice, telling them to go to Moab and away from where they were headed, where the only true God was and worshiped and his word was found. She's given them bad advice. Sadly, Orpah took the advice and headed back to Moab. Fortunately for Ruth, she ignored Naomi. She continued on with her back to Judah. And here's the thing, had Naomi done this in Israel, if she had told someone that they should turn away, stop following Yahweh, and go to another land, go to Moab, go to the land of Chemish, and start worshiping that God, Deuteronomy 13 says that she'd have been stoned for that sort of advice. Basically in chapter one, aside from Ruth getting points for simply ignoring Naomi, no one's motives or actions are looking very good. But you might say, well, but food and wives and family and security, those are good things. We all want those things. Faced with circumstances like they were faced with, uh, based on what looks right in our eyes, all of those actions seemed reasonable enough. That is, however, until you understand one critical, one critical and fundamental truth about life on this planet, and that is that God's word alone is the standard by which one's motives and actions are judged to be right or wrong. Doing what is right in your own eyes, doing the best you can, trying to be a good person, trying to live a good life, none of that matters unless when it's compared to the absolute standard that is God's word, by that standard, it measures up. And as we've seen in our story so far, all of the motivations and all of the actions taken by Elimelech's family seemed good to them, but when you measured them against God's word, God's standard, they all came up well short. Which brings us to chapter two, where we're finally gonna see someone who didn't do what was right in his eyes, but who did what was right in God's eyes. Finally, a man with the right 
motivation, a man who serves as a great example of what pleases God, a man named Boaz. We find out in verse one of chapter two that Boaz is a relative of Elimelech's and that he has great wealth. Naomi and Ruth, who have returned to Judah on the other hand, are dirt poor and in need of food. So Ruth suggests that she go out and glean for some grain so they can make bread. Now for those of you who don't know what gleaning is, gleaning is going into a field after the official harvesters have done their job and you go through and you pick up the pieces and the scraps that the harvesters had left behind. That's what you collected for food. Gleaning was such an important thing that the foreigner who came to Israel to worship Yahweh and the poor, that's what they did to collect food for making bread. And this was a safety net in Israel for the poor, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. And it was so important that God instituted laws which required that people who owned fields allow gleaners into their field. In Deuteronomy 24, 19, God commanded that whenever you reap the harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you must not return to get it. It should go to the resident foreigner, orphan, and widow, so that the Lord your God may bless all the work you do. And in addition, since you know, we try to maximize profits here, in case some harvesters were a little too efficient in their work in a field, this is what God also said. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You must leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So if you had a field, basically what you had, the big sort of beige area is your field, you'd go out in sort of this circular pattern, and you'd go out and you'd clear the field, but you had to leave the corners of the field for the poor and the foreigner, and the orphan, and the widow. So you couldn't get everything. You had to leave that there because that was meant to provide them their grain for food. For those who sought refuge in Israel, that's what they got. Now this is where things start to get good. In Ruth chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, this is what the text says. Ruth departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to the servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And I want you to notice a couple things. First, Ruth just happened to come to Boaz's field. And then behold, Boaz shows up at the same time. Paraphrase Humphrey Bogart's character in Casablanca, of all the fields and all the towns and all the worlds, she walks into Boaz's. Amazing. What a coincidence. Well, there are no coincidences. This is God at work in the life of a poor foreign widow. You see, God just loves doing this. He loves coming to the aid of the helpless and the hopeless because when he comes to the aid who tho- uh, to those who have nothing, To those who have nothing to offer him in return, it shows just how great his grace is. You see, it's good to be gracious to every person, but when one shows favor to someone who has no chance of returning the favor and no ability to repay one's kindness, 
then you really get to see what grace is. And that's what God does because that's what God is like. My favorite verses in the Bible are Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 and 18, which say, for the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who doesn't show partiality or take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the stranger by giving him food and clothing. This great and mighty and awesome God, the creator of the universe, looks out for the powerless, the orphan, the widow. He looks for the helpless. He looks for those in need just so he can help them. Boaz knows this God. Boaz knows just what he's like. And after hearing from the servant in charge of all the harvesting that Ruth was a widow who came from the foreign land of Moab with Naomi, well, Boaz calls her over to himself and tells her something extraordinary. He says, In verse 8, listen carefully, dear woman. Do not leave to gather grain in another field. You need not go beyond the limits of this field. In fact, you can stay, go along beside my female workers. Now, we know that there was a law that required that Boaz allow her to glean in his field, but why did he want her to stay in his field? When people read this, you'll often hear them say that, well, you know, it was probably, you know, Ruth was probably pretty, and Boaz wanted to get to know her better. Well, when people say this, they actually reveal their motivation, and it isn't a good one. In other words, what they're saying is, uh, in effect, uh, if I were Boaz, the only reason I'd want a poor foreign widow to stick around in my field, well, is if she looked good, maybe, and I wanted to you know, get to know her a little better. But that's not Boaz. You see, Boaz isn't motivated by her looks or a desire for a wife. You see, it's important to remember that the book of Ruth is a narrative. It's actual history, but it's written in story form. And in a story, the author puts those details in the story that are important for him to make his point. For example, what do we know about Cinderella's stepsisters? What did they look like? They were ugly. How do we know? Well, because the author said so. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful girl called Cinderella. She had two ugly stepsisters who were very unkind. In the book of Ruth, however, there is nothing written about Ruth's looks. See, this is important because biblical authors included such details when it was important to their story. When Jacob went looking for a wife, Genesis 29, 17 says that Rachel was beautiful of form and face. The same sort of thing is said of Esther and Abigail and Bathsheba. In other words, the Bible will add this information if it's important to the story, if it reveals a character's motivation. Many of us know the David and Bathsheba story, and you know David was definitely motivated by her appearance. But in Ruth, nothing whatsoever about her looks. So why did Boaz care? Ruth was a poor foreign widow with nothing that wealthy Boaz needed. Boaz was blessed to the Lord and living life just fine. But when Ruth walked into his field, everything changed because Boaz saw Ruth like God saw Ruth. You see, Boaz cared because he knew what God is like. 
and he was motivated by a desire to show that to her. He saw Ruth as an opportunity to show her what God's love is like. For Boaz, this was a great day. He now had an opportunity to use all the resources that God had put in his hands for the benefit of another person and a poor foreign widow at that. It doesn't get any better than this. Getting an opportunity to show God's love to a poor person is wonderful. Or getting an opportunity to show God's love to an orphan or a widow was very exciting. But to get to, go, to show God's love to a poor foreign widow? Are you kidding me? This, it doesn't get any better than this. Boaz had to be saying, what did I do, God, that you would be so wonderful to me so as to allow me, Boaz, to get to represent you and your love and your compassion to this poor, hopeless, helpless, foreign widow who has come seeking refuge under your wing. The thought must have been overwhelming. In fact, as we see in the next few verses, Boaz really can hardly contain himself at this opportunity. First, he tells Ruth in verse 9, Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. And when you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what my servants draw. You see, set, see, letting her glean in the field, as the law required, was one thing. But then, starting by telling her when she's thirsty, go and get water free of charge from the same supply that his paid workers were drawing from, well, that was something else. She just got to go and get it free. But Boaz didn't stop there. Uh-uh, no way. When you get an opportunity like this, you do not pass it up. Look at what he does in verses 14 through 16. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain. And she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. And you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. At mealtime, he served her. A wealthy man and owner of the field served a poor widow. He also gave her so much to eat that she ate until she was full and had leftovers. He just didn't give her the minimum. He just didn't give her a cracker and send her on her way. He gave her more than she could eat. And then he told his servants that she wasn't going to be doing any of that wandering to the four corners of the field stuff. Uh-uh. Instead, he tells her that she's allowed to go to the grain that's already been harvested there and pick what she wants from there. You see, and if that wasn't enough, and this is where Boaz's character really blows me away, he actually tells his servants to, you know what, guys, just go to the grain that we've already harvested that rightfully belongs to me and just pull it out of the, the bundles. I mean, just go there and just put it down so that she can pick it up and go, so that she's doing it legally, gleaning properly. Just go and pull it out. Just, I don't even want her to have to go anywhere. Just get it and give it to her. That's Boaz. And you know why Boaz did all this? You know why he went so far beyond what was required? He did it because he was not only motivated by a desire to show her God's love, but also God's grace. 
When I was a young boy, I lived in an apartment in downtown Chicago, and uh, during that time, my grandparents on my mother's side lived in the same apartment. They lived in a basement apartment of that building, and uh, in fact, my grandfather was the janitor of that building and several others in the area. Um, our particular building was a three-story building with no elevator, and every trash day, my grandfather would take a 55-gallon trash can, and he would strap it onto his back, and he'd climb the outside staircase at the back of the apartments to the third floor, and he would set it down, and he would take the trash from the two apartments on the top of that landing and put it in to the, to the garbage can, and he'd put it back on, and he'd go down to the second floor, and then the first floor, and he'd repeat that same process, and he'd fill up the garbage can. Then he would go to the boiler room, and he would empty out all the trash there, and then he would go out and get more from the other apartments. It would take him about five of these trips to collect all the garbage from that one building. For him, it was a grueling task. But for me, each trash day was special. You see, we lived on the first floor, and after he collected the trash from all the apartments, he would stop by our apartment to see me. I was about three or four years old at the time, and during nice days, my mom would open the door, and I would wait, staring out the screen door there for my grandpa to come visit, and, and when he would come into the apartment, boy, I'd be all over him. I didn't care about the garbage or anything, man. I was just there. See, because of the great love and care that and attention he showed toward me, day after day, I just thought he was the greatest. So one day I went to my mom, and I told her I wanted to be just like him, and I wanted a garbage can just like he had. So my mom got a five-pound coffee can, and she poked some holes in it, ran some string through it, gave it to me, and I was off. I was tearing through the house. I was picking up garbage out of garbage cans, putting it in mine, and then I'd come back into the kitchen to the main garbage can, and I would empty out. I'd pick up a few of my toys, throw them in, empty it out, and then I'd be off again, and, and my mom would have to pull the toys out and everything, put it back. I didn't care. None of that mattered to me. All that mattered to me is I wanted to be just like him. As I was preparing the sermon, that memory of what my mom told me about those days popped into my mind because I think that we tend to lose our way uh, uh, often as we progress on our spiritual journey and our walk with God turns into something that's more of a burden or rules or requirements than a joy. It's, it becomes all of these things that we're told to do and are added to our to-do list rather than opportunities. And if there's one thing that Christianity should never be, it's a burden. Because if it becomes that, you've missed the point. You see, there was no rule in our house that I had to walk around with a coffee can strapped to my back. My parents aren't that mean. They're wonderful parents. My mom didn't have to remind me each day that I needed to, each trash day to get my coffee can and start walking around the house. My dad didn't threaten me with a spanking if I wasn't waiting for my grandpa at the screen door. I just did it. I did it without being told. I did it because I loved him, and I did it because I wanted to be just like him. This is Boaz. This is Boaz seeing and understanding God as so amazing and so gracious and so full of love that the only thing he wants to do is be just like him. Where did Boaz learn this? Well, he certainly learned it from the scriptures like Deuteronomy 10, which told him about God's great care for the outcast and the hopeless and the orphan and the widow. But he also probably learned quite a bit from home about God's character 
when he was a young boy. You see, you may not know, or you may have forgotten, but Boaz's mother was Rahab, the harlot, a woman with a sordid past who left her people in Jericho because she had decided to put her faith in God and seek refuge under Yahweh's wing. You see, Boaz knew God's word, but he knew what God was like because he had heard how God had showed compassion and grace to his mom. And now here was a woman, a poor foreign widow, who left her people and came to seek refuge under Yahweh's wing, and she ends up in his field. You tell me, did Boaz need to figure out which rules to follow? No. He just imitated the character of the God he knew and loved. Is that you? Do you go through life motivated by the pursuit of money and fame and power? And, or you just stare up at God with such awe and such love and such admiration, just standing there looking at him through the screen door, and your only thought each day is, I want to be just like him. God has more money than you'll ever have. He's more famous than you'll ever be. He has more power than you can imagine. You can be motivated by achieving those things, but regardless of how much you achieve, you'll never impress God, and that's no way to live a God-pleasing life. You see, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, young or old, famous or anonymous, powerful or not. Boaz was rich, well-known, and powerful. Ruth was a powerless and poor nobody. Yet those two lived lives that were pleasing to God because they lived him according to his word rather than what was do doing what was right in their own eyes. Oh, and Boaz and Ruth became the great-grandparents of King David, and they're part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What can we take away from Boaz's example? Simple. Rethink what's motivating you. And look for ways to be an example of God's character to others, especially to those who can offer you nothing in return, and especially to those who you don't think deserve it. As I've heard Jeff say before, uh, that you are doers and hearers around, not hearers around here. And two weeks ago, he challenged you to examine yourselves and answer the question, where is God calling me to obey, to devote myself? I love that because your pastor gets it. You know what type of people ask that question? People with the right motivation for living life. That challenge, that question, shows that Jeff is someone, and from what I know about him, and I know him pretty well, he's just looking up at our Heavenly Father and pleading with you to say with him, we at Woods Edge Church want to be just like you, God. Give us more of these opportunities. Bring more Ruths into our field. We have so much, and we want to use all of it to show everyone around us what you're like. You have loved us and been gracious to us, and we want to show others that same love and that same grace, and when they ask us why, we're just going to point them to Jesus and say, he's why. We're just showing you what he's already done for us and what he wants to do for you. If you're here this morning and you're surprised that the God of the Old Testament isn't just some fire and brimstone, wrath and judgment God, let me tell you what you saw through Boaz was just the tip of the iceberg. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God himself came down and announced to Moses just what his character is like. 
And do you know what the very first word out of God's mouth to Moses to describe himself, do you know what the very first word he was to describe himself? It wasn't mighty and powerful and awesome and amazing. Compassionate. He said, I am the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, willing to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is the same God in the New Testament. He sent his only son into the world to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, to pay the penalty for your sin and mine, rise from the dead so that God can give you his 100% righteousness so that you can spend eternity with him in the kingdom. And all you have to do is trust that he did that for you. It's that easy because God loves you that much. He is compassionate and gracious. You may think you're too bad or too old or too young or that you've been rejecting God for too long and his offer of eternal life, you've said you don't want any of it and that he won't have you now. Well, even if you're as bad as Rahab, God will have you. He wants you. And just like Ruth kept walking deeper and deeper into Boaz's field, you're just getting deeper and deeper into God's. And it's an opportunity for him to show you just how great his grace is and how much he loves you. The question is, will you let him? He's written you a love letter. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And he's awaiting your reply. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have revealed to us what you're like. Every day when I read your word and I see what you have provided to us, I just stand in awe of how amazing and loving and gracious and compassionate you are to me a sinner, that you sent your son to die so that I could have life as a gift. It just is amazing to me. I thank you so much for that. I pray, Father, that you'll open our eyes to see you more clearly, that you'll send your spirit to work on our hearts so that we can love you more deeply, and Father, so that he will show us those areas in our lives where we've been motivated by anything other than a desire to be just like you. And I pray for this church, Father, that it will become a church of Boaz's, that it will be known that if you're Ruth, you show up at Wood's Edge and you experience love and grace that is amazing, and that this church will say, send us more, just keep sending us more because we want to be just like God. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.